Well, if you're not already there, uh, turn, turn to the book of Ruth. Uh, normally, Alan and I will, will, will rotate preaching, and I preached last week, and as I was preparing for a sermon last week, um, I told Alan, I said, this is really kind of coming together in two parts. Would you, would you mind if I, I preached two weeks in a row? And Alan's, Alan's very gracious, and he said, he said yes, ab- absolutely. Um, I'm so grateful for, for that. Um, you know, I, I know in a lot of churches that the, you know, when one pastor r- r- sort of rules the pulpit and, and, and is hesitant for good reasons or for, for wrong reasons for, for sharing that. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, that, that Alan and I can, can, uh, can share that responsibility and, and do so in, in trust. So thank you, Alan. Um, so... We're back again uh, in, in Ruth. So uh, last week we, we started our series on the book of Ruth and, and we, we opened up the book to, to find a typical Israelite family living in the time of the judges and we talked about that time that it was a dark time in Israel's history, a, a time characterized by um, by, by faith and then idolatry and then God would send uh, a nation to oppress the people and the people would cry out and God would then raise up a judge who would deliver the people from that oppression and then turn the people's hearts back to God only then for them to fall back into idolatry. And this was the cycle through the, the book of Ruth. It's a dark time uh, and a time that's particularly characterized by unbelief and oppression. And, and this is the setting for the book of Ruth. And and Elimelech's family, who we, we were introduced to in the first uh, the first couple verses, they're 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 sort of the typical Israelite family. Um, and, and in that uh, in that first verse, we find that the Lord sends a famine upon uh, upon the land upon Bethlehem, and Elimelech's family, instead of repentance and faith, they choose the way of pragmatism, and they go into the foreign land of Moab, and they seek blessing there. They seek. Uh, nurturing. They, they seek to thrive in a location that God's hand is not. And as a result of that, Elimelech and his two sons die. And, and we talked about the consequences of sin, that sin has real consequences, that the disciplining hand of the Lord is real. It's not something for us to simply ignore to pass off. And so it caused us to look at ourselves and examine our hearts. Lord, is there any wicked way in, in me? Where is my heart right now, we saw that the Elimelech's family, they're not in blatant rebellion, shaking their fist at God, but they're in this subtle slide into casual unbelief. And we talked about the warning against that. So that's where we left off. And we, and we left off with the, 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 sh- the shadow of hope or the, the spark of hope, I guess, if you will, in verse 6, where, where Naomi, Elimelech's widow, learns that the Lord's hand, he's removed his hand of discipline upon the land uh, back in Bethlehem, and he sent food. And so Naomi makes the decision to return, and that God's grace comes at just the right moment. We're going to see more of that as we, as we move through. So we get into the second part of the chapter. We're going to cover a, a lot of ground here, so I'm not going to read everything, but really try and hit, hit highlight points but what we find is Naomi and her, and her daughters-in-law are making the decision to go back to Bethlehem. Uh, apparently, the, the living there is going to be better than l- whatever life they've managed to, to mine out in, in Moab. 
And so Naomi makes the decision to go back. But it's not a journey that's full of hope that even has a silver lining. For Naomi, it's a dark, depressing journey that's characterized by bitterness and hopelessness. But for Ruth, it's one of hopefulness. And so I want to look at Naomi, I want to look at Ruth, two women who are really in exactly the same situation. They're literally walking side by side on this journey back to Bethlehem and how they respond. Because one responds with, bitter, uh, with bitterness and the other one responds in faith. And so I want to look at that and, and see, Lord, what are you teaching us about the nature of faith here in the midst of suffering? Because that's, that's where we are, that when the chips are down, when we go through suffering, how do we have faith like Ruth? And how do we not fall into despair? How do we not just crumble underneath the, the pressures of what's going on? So that's the question I want to ask, and I want to I look at that this morning. So first, let's look at Naomi. Let's look at Naomi's circumstances. Okay, What's... What's caused this in, in, in her? Because the response we get from her throughout this chapter is a negative one. One, she's a widow. Now keep in mind, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament times, to be a widow was really to be at the bottom uh, of, the, uh, of the social barrel, really. Widows had no rights over property, possession, anything. We found out later in the, in, in the book that Naomi owns property, but she can't do anything with it which is sort of this kind of weird, you know, weird position. She can't really do anything with this, with this property that she has. But they have no rights. They have no political rights. They have no hope for gainful employment. They're basically completely dependent upon the society in which they live. In our modern day, this would be the equivalent of the homeless, really. So she's a widow. Um, and, and in the light of that, she, she sends her daughters away uh, to, to their own homes because they're widows too. She says, look, she said, it's going to be worse for me than you. Go back to your homes and make families for, the, for yourselves. That, that's essentially what she's saying. And, and she, she asked that the Lord's blessing would be upon them. Now, now maybe, she's, maybe she's just simply asking that the common grace of God, the common grace that Alan was talking about with the, with the kids, the rain falling on the just and the unjust, maybe the common grace of God would allow them to to live, basically. That they could go back and they could, they could marry and they could have children. Maybe that's what she's asking. Maybe she's not really concerned about the larger theological implications here, but it's worth our pointing out. It is that she's asking for a blessing upon her daughters-in-law outside the covenant community of God. When, where, is, where is the God who is? I mean, the whole, the whole point is the God that the Moabites are worshiping is not the true God. Where's the real God? His presence, His Shekinah glory, is in Israel. That's where the blessing of the Lord is. And so she's asking for, for a blessing upon them outside of that. And we get a little bit of a window into how does Naomi view God here? And we'll talk more about that, but it's worth pointing out. So she sends her daughters-in-laws away and they, are, they argue with her. You know, this, this is a loving family, and we should commend them for it. You know, how, how many of you, men or women, you know, when you see this love and this, this, um, this fellowship that these, that these folks have, you know, particularly with their mothers-in-law, you know, that, that, that they just have this love amongst them, and it's commendable to be sure. So they, 
uh, Orpah and, and Ruth, they, they, they cry and they hug her and they say, we're not leaving you. And Naomi points to one other fact. She says, I'm childless. I'm, I, I'm childless. And in their culture, family lineage was essential. That the, there, there was no kind of, you know, pick up and go off on your own and, you know, start your own kind of new thing. That was rare. Everybody stayed close to family. Family ties were, were essential. Property uh, rights, all of these things were passed down through, through the lineage. A person's value and their livelihood, that was all bound up in, in, their, in their lineage. When, when it says that a man uh, separated from his mother and father and married a woman, they didn't move off to Seattle, you know, or, or, or anything like that. They moved in in the backyard, essentially. You know, they, they took up residence just down the road. And that's how, that's how families stayed together. And so, so that was essential. And when Ruth, or excuse me, when Naomi says, she says, I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have any children whom you can marry. She's pointing to um, a, an Old Testament provision that God had given in Deuteronomy 25 called the Leverite Marriage which basically said where, where, where a man is deceased, his brother is legally bound to marry the widow, care for her, bear children through her, through which the lineage of the brother can continue. And, and through which the widow and, and, uh, can be taken care of. And so that, that, that lineage and that hope doesn't stop right there. And that's crucial for us to grasp here because Clearly, with Ruth, there's no brother. There, there, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't possible. The, the, though she's got family, which we find later on, she's got no direct relative that she can lean on for this. She knows the law, but she, she can't lean on that. So her situation is absolutely dire. And she points to this with her daughters-in-law. She says, look, even if I had children in my womb right now, would you wait around? Would you wait around for them to, be, to marry? No, no, surely you, surely you wouldn't. Naomi's very practical. She's extremely practical. She just lays this out. So here's the situation. Go home. Go home. You've got more hope there than with me. So that's her, that's her circumstance. I mean, she is absolutely destitute, and, and reasonably so. But she's very specific about the cause of her circumstance. Three times in this chapter, she says, it's the Lord that's afflicted me. Look with me, verse 13. She says, it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then when she gets back to Bethlehem, and the ladies are stirred in the community, and she says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And then again, she says, why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. Now, we don't get a lot here that tells us exactly how she's feeling and, and you know, details about what's going on with her. But what we do get is, is a negative bent. We, we get grumbling. We get complaining about the heavy hand that the Lord has set upon her. Remember, she's not in blatant rebellion. She's not in blatant rebellion. It's in a, it's in a casual slide into unbelief, and she's been crushed under the weight of the hand that God's dealt her. Bitterness is, what, is, is what's described here. Now, last week, I, I made the argument, just, just briefly pointing to verse 20, that 
that she that that she feels some sense of accountability for the for for the for the sufferings that she's going through. That she says the Lord has dealt bitterly with me in the sense that the the, the Lord is against her because of sin she's committed. Now she's not specifically said that, but I, I spent I, I made six arguments last week for that aspect, not specifically from this text, but. When we look at the overall response of Naomi in this situation, we see that that that's characterizes her, her attitude. Is she's bitter about this. That's, that's where she is. And, and uh, Antoine, I'm grateful for the translation that you read because in verse 13, where many translations, I read the NASB, translates the word harder, which says it's harder for me. She's talking to, to her daughters-in-law. Many translators translate that as Bitter. It's more bitter for me. I've got a personal stake in this. Ruth and, and, and Orpah, you're experiencing collateral damage you know, here. I'm the one that the Lord has his hand upon. And of course, when she gets back into, uh, into Bethlehem, she, she says, don't call me sweet. That's my name. Call me bitter. Call me bitter, for that's, that's what I am. And, and aren't we so like this, right? When... when when things are going well, when our career's on the fast track, when, when the kids are doing great in school, everybody's healthy, when things are going well, we're bold. You know, we're, 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 we're on top of the world. We, we feel like we've got a clear view of everything. And then all of a sudden, boom, tragedy hits. And the, and, you know, the rug's pulled out from under us. How quickly do we fall? Right? And we lose perspective. We get so caught up in our own fears, our own lack of control, there's no possibility. In, there, there's no room for that God might actually step in and do something Himself. And we see this too with Ruth, with, with Naomi, in the way she responds to Ruth. When Ruth, when when Ruth stays and she she gives this just awesome profession of faith and commitment to uh, to Naomi, it says in verse uh, verse eighteen when she when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her. She said no more to her. Literally, she stopped speaking to her. Now, now in the context of that, think of this. R- Ruth, Ruth has faith. She's, she's, she has faith to move forward with this. And, Re- and Naomi's in despair. She doesn't want to hear it. She doesn't want to hear it. How many times do you get in the, you get in the depths of despair and you just, you, you're, you're, you're shut off to any sense of hope? I don't, I don't want to hear it. And Naomi's there. So you see the depths of, of the darkness that she's in. And we, I think we can sympathize with her. I think we can. But Naomi forgot something. She forgot the God who turns bitter water into sweet water. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. I have this bookmarked. Exodus 15. Here's a story that Ruth, w- uh, excuse me, that Naomi would have had available to her, certainly in, in, in an oral form, even while she's in, in Moab. Here, uh, the Lord had just stepped into history and, and sovereignly intervened in, in the midst of the Israelites' people, and they were at the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies coming behind them, and the Lord steps in, parts the waters of the sea, and He sends His people through on dry land. Phenomenal miracle. 
And then the people, as they move through the wilderness, just three days later, they're thirsty. There's no water. They come to a place, and there's water. There's water here. We can drink. And they taste it. And the water's bitter. You know what they named that place? Mara. They named that place Mara, which means bitter. Then they grumbled and they complained and they, they went to Moses and they said, what are we to drink? And, the Lord, and, and Moses goes to the Lord and, and the Lord says, Moses, you see that tree over there? Take that tree and throw it in the water. That's not practical, right? I guarantee you that wasn't a sugar cane tree. And, and Moses takes the tree and he throws it in the water and the water turns sweet. And the people drank. And the Lord taught the people a lesson that day. Verse 26 says, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I've put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. I, the Lord, am your healer. You see, Naomi knew She knew a God who was just. She knew that God was just. She understood the rules. She understood the law. But she forgot God is gracious. God is merciful. He can turn bitterness into sweetness. Now now let's be clear. This isn't health, wealth, prosperity. This isn't saying that Every time you suffer, God is going to bring about good results. The, the pages of, his, uh, of, of Scripture, if we take them into account, tell us that's not the case. Right? Remember uh, um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they, they, they're getting ready to go before the furnace, and they say, we're not going to serve you, king. God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to serve you. We're going to serve the true God. Remember, uh, um, remember Esther? You know, I mean, Queen Esther, and, and, and she goes, and she goes before the, the people, and she, she says, uh, or she tells Mordecai, she says, tell them to fast, tell them to pray, and I'll go in to the king, even though it's against the law. He's going to beseech the king on behalf of the people to save them. It's against the law. She can die, and she says, if I perish, I perish. What about John the Baptist? He's beheaded. Jesus knows about it. Jesus raises Nicodemus from the dead. He saves so many people. He doesn't save John the Baptist. James, brother of Jesus, martyred. Peter martyred. All these others martyred. Prophets killed, torn apart. Let's, let's be clear we call a spade a spade. Having faith in God doesn't mean that every time you suffer, He's going to bring about the cleanest, most comfortable result and everything's going to be tied up in a neat bow. There's something much deeper that must ground us in our faith than merely comfort and ease. And we're going to see that with Ruth. So Naomi's vision was clouded here. She couldn't see God as gracious, and so she's bitter. But what about Ruth? We're back in Ruth. Keep in mind, two women, same situation. Both are widows. 
Both are childless. It says uh, in, in a, a previous uh, verse, verse 4, 10 years passed, no children. No, no children. They're both in the same situation. They're both destitute. But what's more, Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite. She is specifically outside the covenant community of God's people. If you know your, your, your Old Testament history, you know that the, the Moabites came out of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. And further, when the Israelites were coming into the promised land, the Moabites, in their territory, they said, you can't pass through here. They cursed the, the Israel, kept them out, and Israel had to reroute around that territory. And the Lord put his thumb upon the Moabites. He even said, look, don't let any of these people into my temple. It, here's the Gentiles, here's the nations, you know, at this point in, in Israel's history, they're excluded, but specifically the Moabites. Don't let them in. So she's, she's in a bad spot. She has a history of pagan worship. She's an adult now, keep in mind. She has a history of personal pagan worship. Sin that stacked up against her, even in her most moral moments. I think if we're honest and we, we lay the cards out, she's got more of a reason to be bitter than Naomi does. At least Naomi grew up hearing the stories. At least Naomi grew up having some experience of the God who is. Where Ruth did not. And yet she responds phenomenally different than Ruth. Look at her response. Um, if we're back in Ruth, chapter 1, verse 14, says Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and she left, but Ruth clung to her. Pay attention to that word clung. The, the Hebrew word means uh, or, or describes a covenant commitment. It carries a weight similar to a marriage bond. This is what Naomi, or this is what Ruth is, is saying. When it says that she clung to her, it doesn't mean that she grabbed hold of her, of her ankles and said, don't go without me. She's saying, no, I'm, I'm committing to you. I'm making a covenant commit with, to, with, with you. Now let's look at the commitment that she makes and its gravity. Verse 17, but Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Why? She says, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You see, Ruth commits to live with Naomi. So I'm going to live where you live. She commits to fold her life into the covenant community of God's people. That's a people she's never known before. Outside of Limelech's family. And that's for better or for worse, by the way. She doesn't know what's going to happen in, in, uh, in Bethlehem. And the way Naomi's painted this picture, it's not going to be good. But she's also committed to follow the God of Naomi. Your God will be my God. Verse 17, this is a lifelong commitment. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. It's a lifelong commitment and it's a whole life commitment. Catch, catch that. That's the gravity of what she's saying. So I'm going to abandon my former life. I'm going to abandon my people, leave my family in the face of real hopelessness. 
you know, this wasn't a better business deal that she said, no, you know, this looks better than that. So I'm going to choose this one. She didn't lay out a ledger and do pros and cons. I'll never forget when my wife and I first got married and, um, and we decided we were going to get a dog. A little, little Maltese dog. Many of you met this dog at one point when he was still alive. And, and we're both so just very black and white and practical. And we, we, I'll never forget, we sat down in, the, in, in her car in the parking lot at Clemson University and we literally drew out a ledger of pros and cons for why we should get this dog. And the pros went out. And that's just, isn't that how we think so often when we're faced with situations? Is we lay this type of stuff out. Ruth doesn't do this. She, she's, you know, she, she doesn't... She's faced with real hopelessness. And she makes this type of commitment. She's, she's sort of the picture of the Proverbs 31 woman who looks at the future and smiles. Keep in mind, that's not anything in and of herself. I've heard so many women, and I'm going to be, I'm going to step out on a limb here and I'm going to touch Proverbs 31. That's dangerous for a man to do. I get that. But I hear so many women look at that and they look at that in despair. That woman comes, brings nothing of herself to the table. It is of faith that she brings to the table. And that's what we see in Ruth. That's what we see in Ruth. So how does Ruth, this Moabite woman who's destitute, have such faith? How does it happen? In the midst of your suffering, whether that's because you did something wrong and you're, 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 you've got the, co- the real consequences of your own sin, or, 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 or you're in the midst of somebody else that, that it's their own sin, and, and you're in the mess of it with them. Or maybe you're counseling somebody who's going through something. How do, you, how do you have faith? How do you encourage faith? Well, with Ruth, I think it's pretty clear here that Naomi's family, they still worshipped Yahweh. They still worshipped God during their time in Moab. All, all, Moab, Moab. Although it was, it was casual, right? Remember the story context. And Ruth probably heard about this God through Naomi's family of telling the Old Testament stories of how God rescued his people. Remember, what part of the Old Testament do they have? They don't have judges because it's, it's, it's happening. They've got the law, they've got Genesis, Exodus, and, and then the law. <laughs> you know, so that's what they have right here. So Naomi's hearing the story of Abraham, God's covenant promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you, and all the nations will be blessed out of you. Maybe Naomi said, that's, that's all the nations. That, that's me. That, that's in spite of what, what my people have done, maybe even what I've done. He's made that promise. She, she heard maybe about um, Joshua, about Joshua, and how God brought him to Egypt and there was a famine. There's a famine in the land now. There's a famine and how God provided for his people. About Moses and God and the plagues upon Egypt and God bringing, rescuing his people out of oppression. God's constant provision for his people in the wilderness in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their bitterness, in spite of their grumbling and complaining. God's mercy to Rahab. 
the harlot. All of those stories testify of a God who's merciful and just and graciously intervenes on behalf of a people in the pages of history. You know, there's there's a footnote. What we see in Ruth here, it's a testimony that we don't have to have all the right words. We don't have to have all of our theological I's dotted and T's crossed. We, have to know, we don't have to know the answer to every single question. We don't, we don't have to have all of our life together in order to bring someone to faith. Ruth is a testimony of how the, just the spark of faith amongst the smoke of unbelief can cause the fire of faith in someone else. You see, Ruth saw what Naomi forgot. That God is a sovereign God of grace. And she put her hope in that. She saw who God was, what He was doing, and she said, I want to be a part of that, even if it costs me everything. So we've got Ruth, we've got Naomi. Two women, same situation, two very different responses. Now let's step back because Ruth's Ruth's faith here isn't the solution to Naomi's problem. They're both in dire consequences. They're dependent upon God to step in and do something. God has to intervene. And here, here, we, see, here we see an example of, 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 of compatibilism in, 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 the, in the Scriptures. And this is all throughout Scripture. That God's not a sovereign God who just puppeteers everybody. And everybody's in this fatalist perspective. That's hyper-Calvinism. And we don't, we don't believe that. Because we don't believe that Scripture teaches that. But at the same time, God isn't sitting there kind of just, you know, oh, I hope they make the right decision. He's not pulling back his cupboards of people and going, well, what do I have to work with here? Oh, I've got Ruth, this Moabite woman. She's got faith. You know, that's eh, not exactly what I'd like, but it'll do. And so I'm going to make this, you know, soup here. That's not what happens. Here we see that people make real choices real choices, and God is sovereign in His grace. This is called compatibilism. And we see it in Scripture. I can't explain that just so it's going to be tied up nice and neat in a package. But I can say, here it is. Ruth made a real choice, and God was sovereign in caring about His grace to redeem Naomi. Go to the end of the chapter. Because here's how God intervenes. This is important for us to look at. Because through Ruth's covenant commitment to say, I'm going to lodge where you lodge. I'm going, to, I'm going to fold my life into your people and I'm going to serve your God. Through that commitment, Naomi's redeemed. Look at verse 14 and 15. Here, end of the story. Again, spoiler alert, I did this last week. I know, here's the end of the story. Ruth, Boaz, Mary, they have a child. The child's name is Obed. And Obed, and, and it says in verse 14, the women of, uh, of the town, they change their tune and they say in verse 14, blessed is the Lord who's not left you, Naomi, without a redeemer today. Who's that redeemer? That redeemer is the baby she's holding. Now, how is this little baby a, a redeemer? How, how is it that Obed, this little baby, can bring Naomi back from despair and hopelessness? Well, Obed as the grandchild, is now the means through which her lineage continues. As he grows up, he's 
He's legally bound to care for her. He's going to be relationally bound for that. Everything that she felt she had lost, she now gains back. Do you see, her, his life secured her welfare. His life secured her welfare. She's redeemed. She's redeemed. What was bitter is now made sweet. Through the real choice and faith of Ruth in the midst of hopelessness and by the sovereign hand of God. Now let's step back because this little, this little pretty story that's all wonderful and sweet and maybe even fit for a Hallmark movie, it's only that if we don't step back and look at the bigger picture, the bigger story. Because in the, in the trenches of the battle with this world, the flesh, and the devil, we must have Ruth-like faith. So how do, we, how do we get it? How do we walk in that, those trenches, go through that suffering with hope, with faith? And the answer lies, I think, in, again in Ruth's covenant commitment. Because what she says points us to Jesus. Remember that Obed is Obed's going to be the great-grandfather of King David. And there's a lot with King David, but what comes out of King David in the redemptive narrative that God is playing out is that Jesus would be born of his lineage. Ruth, if you read in, in Matthew the lineage of Jesus, Ruth is mentioned there. She, she's there. She's part of this story of God bringing a redeemer to everyone. Keep in mind that, that Ruth and Naomi, they fall under that sin. And the Old Testament sacrifices, they're only a, a pointing forward to the real Redeemer that has to come. Their sin had to be paid for. God is just and He's gracious, but His grace is costly. And it cost Him His Son. It cost Him His Son, who left His Father in heaven to dwell with us. To lodge where we lodge. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 28? Lo, and I am with you always. It was Jesus who said, I've got I've to go so that I can send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. To die and be buried. The, the very Son of God bore a sinner's death and was put in the ground. But what's more, He died for us. He clung to us. He covenanted with us. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, and he speaks to husbands. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Covenanted with her. Paul writes at the end of Romans, and he says, What can separate us from the love of God? And he lists all these sufferings. Nothing. He's clung to us. And Christ's resurrected life secures our present and eternal welfare. Romans 8, 28-30, the wonderful golden chain of redemption. It says that God causes all things. And remember in that, if you know Romans 8, if, you've ne if you want to memorize any book or chapter in the Bible, memorize Romans 8. Romans 8 is sufferings are producing for us a greater glory. That's the context of it. There's, there's sufferings that are going on here. And he says, all of these things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Here's the key. Why do you suffer? We ask that question. Here's God's goal for you, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You've, to go through the crucible of affliction and suffering that the dross of sin and unbelief would be wiped away and leave the pure silver of faith. It says, I want you to be conformed to the image of my son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 32, he says, If God the Father did not withhold his Son from us, how will he not freely give us all things? If he's done the hard thing of giving us Jesus, he's not going to withhold any good thing from us that's going to make us like Jesus, including suffering. So how, how do we apply this? How do, we, how do we apply this? I don't know everybody's story here. I don't know where everybody is. I know some of you are in the throes of suffering. I know some of you are counseling people who are suffering. It's your faith in the midst of those times has to be more than Bible verses hung on a wall, more than trite Christian catchphrases, more than a list of do's and don'ts in the, in the hopes that if you follow the rules, you'll live just a comfortable life. It's got to be more than having the right theological arguments. Because in the thick of suffering, that's not going to cut it. The rubber of your road really meets the faith, meets your faith there. The rubber of your faith meets the road there. I saw that, Jake. Thank you. God has to be bigger than your circumstances. The power... Oh, so that means digging into the Word. That means getting to know the God who is seeing His mark amongst the pages of your life and the lives of the people around you and engaging in what He's doing. You know, the power of your faith is rooted in the depths of your convictions about who God is, what He's doing, and a willingness to follow Him. That's what we see with Ruth. That's what we see with Ruth. Why else would she give up what she could potentially go back to. And that can be costly. That can be costly. It was costly for Ruth, right? What did she risk going and covenanting with the people of God? She's an outsider. She'd be outcast. She might have to face, this, face real sins of her people and maybe even her own sins. There might have to be repentance there. Costs you pride. You may, you may have to come to face, face to face with your own sins. To humbly admit them. That might cost you financially. That might cost you relationally. It's hard to confess it and to repent. You've got to trust in a big God to do that. That the idol of self gets smaller and smaller and smaller when God gets bigger and bigger in your heart and in your mind. It could cost you popularity. I don't think it was popular for, for, or I don't think Ruth's friends and families applauded her decision. She likely lost relationship with them. It's risky to do what's right instead of what's popular. It's risky to hold people up to the light of who God is and says, I believe this is good. 
It's hard, but it's good because it exposes them. And it, and it risks them not liking it and not liking you. That's risky. It's not popular. It means hitching your life to people who are a mess. Look at Naomi. Naomi, a, she's a depressed wreck. And the people she goes back to, they're, they're not going to welcome Naomi. Or they're not going to welcome Ruth. Right? This isn't exactly a warm, fuzzy time in Israel's history. It means hitching your life to people who are a mess. It means following God's revealed will and trusting in His secret will. We found out later that when, they, when Ruth and Naomi get back to Bethlehem, excuse me, they've got to have food. We've got to have food. And, and Ruth steps up to the plate and she goes, okay, we've got to have food. I, I know about this provision that God's given about that the, the poor can glean at the edges of the field. And so I'm going to go do that. Well, here's God's revealed will. Go glean. Go get food. Don't sit there and wait for something to happen. Go get food. And Ruth says, okay, I'm going to go get food. While trusting in his secret will. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She could get raped and murdered. Right there. But she goes, God's made this provision. So I'm going to trust in him. Hopefully he'll provide enough food for us to, to, to last another day. She can't see that his secret will includes her full redemption, a restoration of her and Naomi that's beyond her imagination. So that, that means for us, we do what needs to be done. We trust in his secret will. You're addicted to porn? Get rid of the internet. Take practical measures with what God has said. Give no toehold for the devil. You got cancer? You're sick? Go get checked out. Go to the doctor. All at the same time, running to the cross and saying, Lord, you've got to do something. You've got to do something because behavioral modification isn't going to fix it. You're intending this for more. Coming to suffering and, and not crumbling in despair and saying, Lord, you're up to something. You're, you're doing something here. It's hard, but I trust in you. I'm following you. Let me go to your scriptures and see what have you said for, for me to do? What have, what have you clearly laid out? And I'm trusting that in following this, you're going to make me more like Jesus. You're going to make people that I'm in contact with more like Jesus. Last point. At the end of this chapter, they come at the barley harvest. It's a time in spring. It's the first harvests of the year. It's amazing in the book of Ruth, just the coincidences that happen. I mentioned last week, and I think it's worth repeating. God never actually appears personally in this book, but He's throughout the entire pages. They just happen to come at the barley harvest, which is a time when, they, when, when Ruth can glean at the edges of the field and just happen to meet Boaz. God's grace comes at just the right time. Trust in that. See God for who He is. Speak the gospel to one another. See the gospel clearly. See the God who is. Look for his thumbprint in your life and the lives of others. Trust that in the midst of suffering, he's making you like Jesus. Hold on. I love the old hymn, Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus. And one of the lines in it says, Oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Father God, I...
Thank you for your provision. Studied this week and struggled and just felt, I'm just not, I'm not seeing it, Lord. And even through preaching this morning, I'm encouraged. I hope that others have been encouraged this morning. I hope that I've not belittled suffering. It's real. It hurts. I hope that I've not over-spiritualized things. I hope that I've painted a clear balance. Father, help us. Help us in the midst of our suffering to see you clearly. Give us wisdom to know what to do to follow you when it looks destitute, when all human hope is lost. You'd send us to the cross. We'd see Jesus. We'd cling to Him. We'd cling to the stories of Scripture that are true, that really happened in history. See your handprint in them and then see your handprint in where we are now and follow you in obedience even if it's costly. Thank you that you're a a grace, that you're a God who is sovereign and gracious. Thank you that you allow us to make real choices, even though that's scary. May your grace go before us this day as we depart. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance towards you and give you peace. You're dismissed.